And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Monday, September 19th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, we will attempt to answer a very frequently asked question over the past week or so. Which hitters are most likely to benefit from the new restrictions on shifting, which will be in effect for the 2023 season? So we fumbled our way through some savant searches trying to come into the group of players that should benefit in some way. We'll debate whether or not it's actually going to be a small uptick in production, a medium uptick in production, or perhaps even a venti uptick in production. We've got um, a few other good questions related to defense. And then, of course, uh, we haven't talked about this on our show for a while, but you know, Shohei Otani versus Aaron Judge in the AL MVP race and, and the, the battle that is ensuing there, but also the challenges of properly valuing Otani. I want to talk about that because it's a topic that everybody's all over right now, but I also want to talk about it from the sense of recency bias, since that has a massive impact on how we value players going into next season. So we begin with a simple question. You know, how was your weekend? Good. Good. Yeah, good. The, uh, the, the, there were baseball games. We, uh, we are a baseball family now. So the kids are in little league we went from one baseball game to another baseball game. Any tanks? To, huh? Tanks? No, well, uh, my in my son's, uh, the, the older son's game, there was a walk-off home run. Um, but I would call it a solid line drive. So it was not a over-the-flagpole <laughs> moonshot that some kids occasionally hit. It was, you know, a well-driven ball that just rolled past everybody. Yeah, like a major league single. Sure. Well, hey. It's a it was, home he run. hit it hard. He yeah. hit it hard. It was the hardest hit ball of the day, and and uh, it's, a, it's a big kid. So uh, he 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 was the team MVP for the day. Uh, Felix uh, got um, my older kid. He he got uh, a walk, two walks, and a hit by pitch. So the OBP through the roof right now. Yeah, exactly. He's uh, he's got like a seven fifty OBP. Yeah, so he, he's really he's really taken to the advanced stats. <laughs> Does he have an elbow guard? Do kids wear elbow guards in little league? No, but nobody throws that hard. So like, I was like, <laughs> when he got hit afterwards, I was like, did it hurt? Are you hurt? Are you okay? And he goes, Yeah, I don't know. Hit my elbows. No big deal. Yeah, that's fine. It, it was forty five miles an hour. It's, it's okay. Exactly. I almost caught it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, the one thing that is really tough about watching youth baseball. Um, or all the damn walks, dude. It's mm. so many walks. Oh man, the, with the um, with the younger son, he's in, in coach pitch, so you know, not as much of a problem. But once the kids start pitching, man, it's it's really hard to to hit the the, the glove, you know. Yeah, I'm trying to remember back 
in the Little League days. I mean, Little League back when, when I played, it was 10 to 12-year-olds. So it was mostly the 12-year-olds that got to pitch because the 10-year-olds couldn't throw very hard. And if they could even throw hard, they had zero command at age 10. So it was mostly the older kids that would pitch back then. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe some of this is because this is fall ball. So we've lost some of the best athletes to soccer in the fall. Uh, But uh, one of the reasons I wanted to do it was to uh, get my kids in in the door, in the process, having getting them some uh, experience before they decide they want to do fall ball, which I mean, spring ball, which is more competitive. It's also hilarious to me that sports are year-round everywhere pretty much everywhere now because of indoor facilities where it's cold and everything because little league was may to august and then baseball was done and then baseball came back the following may that's how it was that was only it wasn't that long ago i was a kid in the 90s i'm not that old but the idea of being able to play in september i would have loved that as a kid baseball was by far my favorite when i was their age so really cool they get to do that Uh, Let's get into some topics. Let's get to the hitters who might benefit the most from shift restrictions. And I think there are a few ways you can try to do a search to hone in on players. So I think it's important if you share your methodology with us because it will help all of us fish a little more efficiently as we navigate that leaderboard. No, you you shared a a pretty cool tweet uh, that I think is is sort of step one. And um, let me see if I can find it. Uh, you have uh, Jeremy Frank from MLB Random Stats uh, tweeted out, uh, most outs on ground balls, line drives hit into the shift this year. And Corey Seager's first with 90 and Kyle Tucker 66, Max Kepler 64. Max Kepler has literally told me uh, he's excited for the shift rules to go away, uh, to, for the shift to go away. So, um, you know, that that lines up, you know, Kepler, Hoskins is on the list, a Seager. These are pull hitters, lefty pull hitters, right? So, you know, that lines up with step one. But uh, I thought, um, I was thinking about the, the chart. Did you have that that picture? Yes, the Just defensive alignment YouTubers. picture. Yeah, uh, I do. For those of you watching on YouTube, I, I just this is just uh, how the league... <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna do half face. This is how the this is uh, uh, this is how the league plays uh, when it's shifting. This is uh, lefties with the shift on. Uh, this is how they play them. So you can see, uh, you know, the the orange blob is the second baseman. He's playing in short right field. The red blob is the shortstop. He's playing up the middle. The green blob is the third baseman. He's playing basically with the shortstop when he plays. So that's your uh, that's your tra- traditional shift right now. Now the rules are going to come in and say, well, uh, you know, two on each side and nobody on the outfield grass. Um, that I don't think is going to change the second baseman's positioning that much. He'll basically just take a couple steps in so that he's ba- right on the on the on the outfield grass cutoff. In terms of left to right angles, you know, one of the things we figured out in the shift was the second baseman should play. You know, if you're looking at this on YouTube, you see the 30 degree angle. Uh, he should play pretty close to the first baseman in terms of angles because that's where pull hitters, you know, hit ground balls. Now, there is uh, going to be a rule about the shortstop, but the reason this didn't change much in the minor leagues is because that shortstop can still stand behind second base uh, at zero degrees. Um, so he's, he has to actually move. Whereas the second baseman can stay at the same angle he's at and just come in, a, 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 you know, two or three feet, 
the shortstop actually has to move so that he's not on the uh, first base side of, of second base. So that is an actual sort of left to right move. So my thinking is in that angle there between 5 and 15 degrees, there used to be a shortstop and now there can't be. You know, um, and I think that's very different than uh, in at the 30 degree angle where the second baseman is just being in a step or two. I think that's also really hard to study. So <laughs> I took the easier, the easier chunk to study, which is who hits balls at five to 15 degrees. Um, who, which lefties hit balls at five to 15 degrees where there now won't be a defender. Um, and that was a, that's an easy query to actually to do on StatCast. Uh, you run, uh, you run your thing. So you have a lefty batter, uh, your launch direction is in, in metric range. You, you can add an at metric and you add launch direction. You just put five and 15 as the degrees. So now we have all the lefty hitters that this year hit the most balls into 515. And, uh, you know, Kyle Tucker is third. Corey Seager is seventh. So those guys are on this list. However, there's a different type of player that's number one and sprinkled in throughout. So Alex Verdugo is your number one. He, he's hit, he hit 91 balls between 5 and 15 degrees. Hmm. Um, that's a lot. And I can actually I can include stats on here, so I can include batting average. Let's do that. So on those pitches, Verdugo did hit 378, but Matt Olson hit 89 balls in the in that in that range and hit 247. So I do think Matt Olson is going to benefit. Kyle Tucker hit 318, uh, but there's a bunch of guys who hit over 400 in that area. So I would say that, you know, if you hit 250, 280, like Brandon Nimmo, uh, and you hit a bunch of balls there, you're going to benefit from this. I think the true true talent is going to be like 350 batting average. Alex Verdugo has done so well, uh, probably because he's hard to shift because he sprays the ball everywhere. I don't know if he's going to do better. But the guys that I think will do better are Matt Olson, Kyle Tucker, Rowdy Telez, Brandon Nimmo, Charlie Blackman. Um... See, Kyle Schwarber already hit 390 on those yeah, he's balls. He's killing the ball when he hits it over there. Yeah, so I don't know that he's going to do much better, but like Jake Cronenworth hit 314. Juan Soto, 71 balls up the middle, uh, 225 average on those. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably going to get better. That was probably going to get better even if the rules didn't change. Right, there's some regression to his you know, his established mean that would happen there. But it is part of why Juan Soto will probably have a better year next year. Max Kepler, 273 uh, in the top 25 in, in balls in that, in that, in that area. Uh, Jose Ramirez has hit 64 balls up the middle and is hitting 190 on those. Hmm. And, and Jose Ramirez being a really pull, pull fly ball guy, uh, you know, there is some risk to his batting average. I think we talk about it every year. Uh, you know, as a first rounder, it's not one of the best batting averages. What if next year he puts together a really primo batting average with it? Yeah, he likes to make me look stupid in the years where I, I back off of him as a first round pick. That's, that's not a good track record for me. 
I've I've had plenty of teams. I have a, a dynasty team that's built on him, and I have plenty of teams where I've I've you know I've won because of him. But um, you know, two seventy eight league average. I mean, he just he, there is something. There does seem to be something sort of uh, risky about him. You know, we've talked about fifty percent fly ball guys. You know, he's been over fifty percent in two of the last three years. So he's got this huge pull fly ball approach and somehow makes a bunch of contact while doing it. It's a, it's, it's rare. Other people that if you gave him a 25% strikeout rate, there'd be years where he hit 210, you know? Sure. But he's kind of far from that, right? Yeah. He has an 11% strikeout rate this year. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, a, I'd say he's a unique player because if you cover up parts of his, you know, of his of his batting line, just put, you know, like you cover up strikeout rate and, and contact rates, you would think this is like a all or nothing lefty slugger, right? Well, yeah, I, I think you could you could look at that and come to that conclusion if you cover up the right things. I was also wondering too, how much has he faded in the second half because he was really on fire for the first two two and a half months. And I'm looking at the splits right now. Some injury. 19 homers in the first half, 87 games, 9 in his last 55. Average down at 262 in the second half as well. 186 ISO. Yeah, not the same guy so far in the second half. But the thumb injury is is definitely worth the mention. You know, like that could be a pretty big part of why he's but he also fallen off as much. Super streaky in his career, right? Wasn't what was the year? Was it 2019 where we just thought? Oh, the two halves that year. Yeah, that was that was wild. Yeah, so he's a he's a crazy he's a crazy guy. Um I yeah. I mean, he really does have the all or nothing slugger approach and yet he makes a lot of contact. So he's he's a unicorn, I think. Well, okay, just for a moment, what do we think his reasonable draft day price is going to be? Is he a top 10 player even with these with these shortcomings over the second half? You know, I saw someone sharing like who who like who would be your top pick. I think uh, Rotogut Vlad had a poll out there. And who did he have on it? He had he had uh he had Julio Rodriguez Julio Rodriguez. He had Julio Rodriguez for the first pick. Julio Rodriguez, Aaron Judge, Jacob deGrom I forget who the fourth one was, but um, already with those three, I was like, oh, I don't know, dude. Uh, Julio Rodriguez has stolen four bases in the second half, you know, so it is worth wondering. And the, and the team has talked about not stealing as much. Uh, I'd never, Jacob DeGrom is off the list for me completely. And then Aaron Judge has stolen 16 bases this year. And, you know, we'll talk about more about him later, but uh, in terms of, making him my first pick next year, I'd be a little bit nervous about the injury history. So I think Jose Ramirez should be like a top five pick next year. All right. So he's still up there just because there's so much stability across the board. Yeah. Yeah. I would assume that some of this is the thumb injury and you're going to end the season with uh, 30 homers and, and near 20 steals. And then I think that these rules will help him hit for a better average next year. So we're talking about a guy who's going to be projected for like 275, uh, 25 homers and 15 steals. And then 
you think you can buy him at that price and he might hit 300? I think he's going to have a 30-20 projection. Yeah. And then and then put a 300 on there? It's possible. I mean, is that why is that not in the in the discussion for the first pick? Well, yeah, the poll, I just found the tweet a second ago from from Vlad. Uh, Trey Turner, 35.7%. That's it. Trey Turner is the other one, yeah. yeah Julio, 32.4%. Judge, 26.1%. And then DeGrom down at 5.8%. I thought the same thing when you mentioned DeGrom. It, I know there are people out there that would do it. I am not one of them. Uh, I just think the the extent of his arm injuries in the last couple seasons are way too significant to even consider a first overall pick for him. I don't even I don't I want to I don't want to take him in the first round, honestly. I'm not taking him in the first round, so maybe I won't have shares. But uh the, like we were just talking about Jose Ramirez and we're saying that he's got a 275 30 20 projection probably and Trey Turner is going to have a 300 20 20 or 20 30 projection, right? So I might order them you know, I I still don't know where to put Judge, man. Okay, let's say you just put him first. Judge Turner Ramirez. I mean, I, I'm putting Ramirez against uh, ahead of uh, of of Acuna. I think. I think that's fair though, just because Acuna has talked about his knee still bothering him this year. I know with an off season to He's rest for a little while and then the build up strength sort of again, disappeared a little bit. I, I just. I, I would be more comfortable. I would think that uh, I would believe Jose Ramirez's projections a little bit more. I'd, I'd have some more more doubt around uh, Acuna's projections. Is basically what I'd say. Who do you think has a higher barrel rate this season, Jose Ramirez or Trey Turner? I was just on Jose Ramirez's page, so I know the answer. <laughs> you know the answer. Okay, they're not they're not that far apart. Turner's a little higher, seven point nine percent. Ramirez, by comparison, but 6.8%, I think it was. I just had it open. Ramirez's extreme fly ball approach means that he's homering on non-barrels. Right. Whereas Turner has a 35% fly ball rate, and he's more towards getting on base. The, the batting average since 2019, Trey Turner, 298, 335, 328, 304. Yeah, that'll work with that power-speed combo. We don't know where he's going to play. He's a free agent. Plenty of places we could put him, like Arizona. We're not going to get into that again. But if it if it's an auction situation, I might actually, if I could get Ramirez for a dollar two less than Turner, I might just do that. You know, that's my favorite thing about that format, though, is that you don't know. Like when the first of those two players comes out, if you like them both and you want to get one, you don't know what player two is going to cost. So you have to just make that hard decision. Yeah. On player one, but I think I what I would do is throw Turner first, and then I would know. Uh, if I got Ramirez at a, at a at a value, you know what I mean? Sure. Throw Turner first, let him go to 40, and then hope I can get Ramirez for 36, 37, 38, something like that. You get to throw him pretty quickly after Turner goes for that because I think if you wait a, a round or two for someone else to throw him, or if you throw him a lot later, that desperation, the I've got too much cash and I don't care what the guy went for 20 minutes ago has set in. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? 
this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight? Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. But uh, then we're bordering on a, a second part of the discussion uh, about these shift rules is uh, position eligibility. Yeah, this is pretty interesting. This, this came in as an email question from Paul. Paul wrote, with new rules coming in next year, limited shift, is it possible we'll see teams move the shortstop to the first base side of the infield and the second baseman to the third base side against left-handed batters? It seems like a good way to still get a defensive advantage without shifting if that did happen we suddenly see every middle infielder in baseball have dual position eligibility. 1,000%. 1,000%. This is going to happen. Uh, there's a, p, a, p, a little piece of an analysis that, that stands behind this. Cameron Grove uh, did an analysis where he said, you know, where, where is the, where, which positions will have the most pressure on their range with the shift rules? And so he looked at... Um, where where batters can stand next year and where it's more important that they have some they have range basically and he found that there was almost no change to the shortstop i think there's already a lot of pressure on the shortstop to have good range we put the our best range guys at shortstop for that reason but that doesn't change that much uh given the rules what does change is second base and third base against righties second base against lefties you want your second baseman to have range now that you can't have a shortstop be standing close to him. And I think that means, you know, my first, you know, there's always 1.0 and 2.0. And like, you know, my first analysis was, okay, let's look at second basemen who are really bad defensively because they may not be able to play much at second base. And so it made me worried for someone like Nolan Gorman, who has the uh is tied for the worst outs above average at second base um as, you know as a as a person who has played second base so you know the the cardinals have a defense first philosophy they like to have good defenders everywhere with this new rule there may be more pressure on that will we see nolan gorman move to the outfield where they have a lot of players, uh, you know what what's what's Nolan Gorman's future look like? Is this going to keep him from playing a lot? Um, you know that was my first uh, idea. But if you can put Nolan Gorman over at third base against lefties, you know, move that and then slide. Arenado is like an amazing yeah. Either an Arenado plays shortstop and the shortstop plays second. Or you could just flip Gorman with Arenado. Yeah. And that's that's Gorman's old position, right? As a prospect, he was a third baseman. Right. And against lefties, he'll be uh, standing over there and probably won't touch a ball. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, so I you think just that's, basically that's one of the ways they do him. Uh, you know, when I, when I discussed uh, doing this uh, in the outfield, there was some pushback from players and from coaches saying, uh, my players will now run an extra mile or two over the course of a game if you're asking me. <laughs> because I was asking, could we, could we switch left and right fielders based mm-hmm. on who's at the plate? Same idea. But uh, in the infield, they're not running as far. I mean, it seems like a ridiculous thing to ask, but, you know, over the course of 162 games, you ask your left fielder and right fielder to, to run across the outfield, you know, 10 times a game or something. Like, it could, could, be, could be an issue. 
That does not take it. a lot of conditioning to be prepared for that. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. The pace, the pace of that is so low. That is a l- it's not zero and it should be accounted for. But my God, we're not asking those guys to max effort sprint across the outfield across. 10 That's times. True. They can just jog over. There. You are jogging with a parent speed like that. That is that is the pace at which you have to jog between batters to get there. Right. I don't think you have to Todd coffee it out of the bullpen. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised. Maybe uh, maybe teams haven't done it more because there's not that much of a statistical difference between their left and right fielders defensively. Right. So it's just not worth pissing the players off you know, to, to get that little bit of an edge. However, I think it'll be worth a lot more with the shift rules in the infield, right? So yeah. as, as you kind of put pressure on range and you have rules about where certain people can be, the obvious answer is going to be, okay, well, now he's my second base. You know, now he's my third base. <laughs> you, know, like, mm-hmm. you, you might want to make me him stand somewhere else. Well, okay, Nolan Gorman, sorry, you have to run over to third and be a third baseman. And that was your sort of, you said something about that. And, you know, I think the, what clicked for me is like, everyone's going to have everything next year. At least around the infield, or at least the middle infield, and I think, I think, but even this Gorman situation, he might go second to third. But yes, I think that's I very team specific. Dual though. second shortstop will, won't be a very valuable combination. I think there'll be a lot of people who have that. Right. I think there's always been a little more weight for me placed on the the guy that could play a middle and a corner spot, or a corner in an outfield, or a middle in an outfield. Like though, yeah. getting out of your position group has carried more value. We've we've always talked about this as something that's not necessarily defined by a specific projected value where it's, oh, well, this guy's multi-position eligible. Let's add a dollar to whatever the projection system spits out for his value. $15 guy, he's a $16 guy, he plays two spots. If it were a dollar for being a multi-position eligible player, I would say it's $2 if, you, if that's not second and short or first and third. If you can go out of your group, that's worth more whether it's it's 2x on a dollar i don't know but it's it's 2x nonetheless if you can get out of the same group yeah yeah I, the questions i'd have if i was working in the front office are like well it's a fourth out four outfielder shift dead because why don't i just make my second baseman my right fielder yeah you could do that maybe they defined it as three outfielders four infielders two infielders on the left two infielders on the right but I don't know. I think I think we're going to see teams like push back and like try to do things. And I think one of the things that we'll do is run. The easiest thing to do is just, you know, now my second baseman is my third baseman. Voila. So the general thought then on defense, though, would be that individual defenders who play the infield and grade out poorly could be susceptible to losing playing time or at the very least, depending on the team they play on moving around a lot more than they're used to yeah yeah i mean i i I do think uh this this revelation about nolan gorman is is somewhat important i mean if you're that bad of a defender and now the rules are putting pressure on it um you know he's been he's been above league average but he strikes out a lot you know, his projection is around league average. If he projections around league average and defense isn't good, this isn't the type of player that the Cardinals like 
make room for, you know? Like, think about Juan Yepes, right? Isn't his story similar where his projections are on league average and his defense is not good? Yeah, I think with Gorman, there's a lot of ceiling there. Right. That's the problem. Is the offensive ceiling is type of hitter that is minus eight outs above average, but you don't care because he's going to hit 30-plus homers and and do a lot of good things for you. And DH will be open for them next year, I guess. You know. Yeah, I think I don't I think, think Dickerson's coming song. back. So you're going to start with O'Neill, Carlson, and Newtbar in the outfield. Um and you have Alec Burleson, you know, coming close. Yepes can play some outfield. So I think basically Gorman can fit in with the outfielders DH group. Um and they'll just have somebody like Donovan be the backup infielder that plays everywhere. Now, I think for all of this, and you're right to bring up Gorman as a good example of someone that would be susceptible to being moved around or possibly losing some time. That DH spot is really important for him. I believe in him as a hitter. I know mm-hmm. the K rates have been high really throughout his entire time in the minor leagues. 2021 was the exception. That 26.7% at AA, that was a, a step in the right direction that half season at triple a where he was under 20 percent that's amazing 2021 at triple a not really a good gauge of a a true talent strikeout rate i see so much in the underlying numbers with that barrel rate being excellent yeah his first foray he he draws walks like there's there's enough things he does well as an offensive player where i'm buying into continued improvement that carries his playing time well then so then you know so then so then who is this Who is this uh, really tough on? I mean, Colton Wong is the worst, but I feel like he has such a good reputation. He, and he's a borderline fantasy play anyway. So he's, you know, either, you're de- either your league is deep enough where your Colton Wong share is, is probably safe, and, safe enough, or your league is, doesn't care about Colton Wong, you know? So right. Luis Renjifo is, uh, has, is really poorly rated. Jorge Polanco is poorly rated, but I think that might actually work in his benefit. I think Jorge Polanco might get shortstop eligibility again next year in the way we're talking about this, right? You, you switch Jorge Polanco and Royce Lewis or, 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 um, Acrea, you know, and on shift plays with the lefty. I was just thinking about the time that Correa missed this season. I want to double check that Polanco didn't already play enough games at shortstop over the course this year. I don't think he did. No, but. I don't think so either. I know he didn't because uh, I'm I'm in an interesting position right now. I'm in a dynasty league with a uh, with like a not good enough crew. We're we're like you know Devils Rejects is this is really tough league that we're in, and uh, and we're like fourth place, you know, we have a pretty good team. Uh, we don't have a shortstop and we've been trying to buy a shortstop and nobody will give up even pe- teams with multiple shortstops. This is actually, uh, this revelation for me is like, okay, maybe I shouldn't stress about it too much. Maybe Jorge Blanco will get his shortstop eligibility back. Maybe Colton Wong will get shortstop eligibility, you know, because they'll move him over there. Um, so I, I do wonder, um, I do wonder if, shortstop eligibility will become something that more many more players have cole long is going to be 32 next season though so from uh, an offensive is he under contract with the brewers they have a club option on him for it's got to be around nine million because that was the average annual value of the deal might be a tick above that it's probably right at that number where they they turn it down they might turn it down 
he's not a bad offensive player at this stage either. It's similar to last year. He's about 10% better than league average since becoming a Brewer. K rate still under 20%, draws his walks, double-digit homers and steals. Kind of an underrated mono-league fantasy player. A little tricky in mixed leagues because the counting stats have been pretty light. Only 58 runs and 40 RBIs. Yeah, yeah. He's been a little brutal. Um, the How about uh, pushing some guys who are barely still in second base uh, to the outfield like Cattell Marte? Yeah, that's a crowded outfield, though. Brandon Lau, yeah, it's true. Uh, Cattell Marte and Brandon Lau. Yeah, it's just hard to tell if, if they're just going to do more work to hide these guys so these guys will get multiple eligibilities. Like, will Brandon Lau be a shortstop next, eligible next year? No. Oh, or third on. base? Would they, put, would they do the thing where they run him over to third base? Kind of hard to know ahead of time. And I think one thing that, you know, is kind of true for both of all the stuff that we've been talking about with the shift. And I think that's why it's kind of funny to see Verdugo at the top there and to see the batting averages on those balls anyway is are so good. That I think that we tend to sometimes overrate, overemphasize how different baseball is going to be and how the players are going to be affected. You know what I mean? Like... The second baseman's still going to play where he's playing. He's going to have to, you know, just sort of come in like two, two or three steps. I don't think that's going to change that much. We know from the minor leagues that the shift didn't change that much on the league-wide level. And then we know that the place where the defender can't be anymore, there still has a really high batting average on balls before. So we don't know how much higher that's going to get. Like, will Max Kepler hit better than 220 on balls up the middle? Probably. But or or Juan Soto probably, but we would have projected Juan Soto regress anyway, you know, progress anyway. So I, I kind of think that in these cases, um, in a lot of these cases, people are going to overrate. Like, do you think Reese Hoskins is going to hit 300 next year because there's because of these shift rules? No, and I'm not even doing back of the napkin math. I'm sort of just running calculations in my head, trying to think about the number of balls that will still be hit in these areas that were hit hard enough to get past where the defender can no longer play. And that's a pretty small number over the course of a season. It's a handful. So I, Max Kepler was an example I was thinking of because you mentioned him before. He's always had this low average problem. 235, it's 240 maybe. a lot of fly balls too. And he doesn't actually hit the ball that hard. Right. So I think I think we're talking about 10 to 15 points of batting average at the higher end. And and even some of that is more luck than anything else. Look at this on that thing that I was doing, the five to 15 degree angle uh, lefties hit the ball there. 1% of the time of their balls in play, I think. And they hit 350 as a league. So, you know, Verdugo might actually regress, but Matt Olson hitting 250 that, that sticks out for me, you know, uh, Juan Soto hitting, uh, Max Kepler hitting 270 on those pitches. Jose Ramirez hitting 190 on those pitches. You know, like that stands out for me. It's still, uh, even on these players that hit the ball there a lot, it's 3% of their balls in play. So 3% of their balls in play, how many balls in play do you get over a season? Like 300? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, typical, just total balls in play. Yeah. Sounds about right. Let's see. Got a leaderboard here. So we're talking about nine or ten balls on which they would normally hit 350, right? Batted ball events, actually, the high end, Marcus Simeon leads the league at 497 batted ball events. Okay, we're gonna, I'm going to do 400 then. 
400 then, 3% of 400 is 12 balls. So we got 12 balls that you would normally hit 350 on. That's four hits. Maybe they get five hits. There's going to be some guys that get a few more, and there's going to be some guys that still get a few less. And, and Soto and Kepler might go from having two hits there normally to having four or five hits. So we're talking about adding three or four hits to some of these guys. Okay, so this would this would qualify, as we're describing it, as something to think about, something to be mindful of, but it's probably more like a, a third-degree sort of thing. Do not go into next year... Oh, Hoskins is a righty. Um, let's do Matt Olson then. Marcus Simeon's high on there too, another righty. Let's give Matt Olson three hits. Right now, Matt Olson is seeing 234. Okay? Let's just give him three hits because of this rule. 133 now. We give him three extra hits. That's 134. Okay, we give him three extra hits. And uh, let's see what his batting average is. 239. 239 instead of 234. Right. Well, the thing is, like, there there are going to be other things you find in Matt Olson's profile that give you more optimism or more of a reason to be optimistic about him being great next year than just those handful of balls that would have been hit at shifted defenders that will now go through and turn into singles. And he's still going to hit, he's still also going to hit a ton of balls at the second baseman. So, I don't know. I, I think this could be overvalued, uh, overrated as a, a thing going into next year. I'm, I'm not like Corey Seager. Let's see. W- w- let's give Corey Seager four more hits. Let's just be wild and just just give away hits. Give him, give him eight. Give him twice as many because he's hitting the ball that way a ton. All right. Let's give him eight hits. So, now he's got 141 hits on the year. His batting average would be 258 instead of 244. All right, all right, all right. But we yeah, also just about, really that's 14 pushed, points. We, yeah, that's not bad. That's yeah. meaningful. But it's it's it, we pushed it pretty hard. But the thing about that is, okay, even if this rule change didn't happen, here, here's the other part of the question, and this applies yeah. to a lot of the players that are in this. He's projected for a 275 average. Right. You are already expecting some kind of regression in the neighborhood of 30 points. Yeah. So if that plus the shift rule, like let's let's give him 10. Let's just kind of lower, bring it back down to like six hits. 10 points for, for the adjustment to the shift rules, 30 for regression, so, 280. So you're going to... You're gonna press. You're gonna. You're 285 next year. That's your over under. Maybe. I yeah, think that might be there. that anyway. I mean, he had to hit 300 a bunch of times in his career. It's not unreasonable that he would do that again. But I, I mean, but how much of it is just this? The shift rule is my question. You know what I mean? Like a smaller percentage than people are currently expecting. Yeah, it, it's it's weird because I do. I think you know. I, I still think Corey Seager is going to be a good draft day pickup next year. I just don't know that like i would just pull up you know lefty pull hitters and just target them all no you know? I, I don't think anyone's gonna do that but you never know it's the the kind of thing that can surprise you when you get to draft season talk for uh for 2023 uh, thanks a lot for the defender swapping question paul i thought that was a really relevant question for what we were talking about today anyway it'd be really relevant to how because i think there's a growing sense of like multi-eligibility players especially in draft and hold and 
Um, you know, I've talked on this podcast about how I would like to have multi eligibility guys even on my regular teams because then I can have one more uh, bench spot be a pitcher. Um, and I think that's more useful. So, you know, there is a chance that we also overvalue multi position eligibility guys and then find, you know, two weeks into the season that, you know, 20 players now have added positions. I have tried to find the players who, because of predetermined position moves, will add eligibility in season. Because I think that is not as often priced in on draft day as the player that has the two or three positions already listed like next to his name. Like a Simeon who was a shortstop and you knew he was going to play second or whatever. That's yeah, sort of Story thing. this year, becoming yeah, a second baseman. and ball, like th- Those kinds of guys that you just know. Like, well, he can't play the position he used to play because someone else is playing it. Therefore, five games in, now he's eligible at this other position too. Yeah. Let's get to a question here about Shohei Otani and breaking war. Uh, this came in from David. Seems like with each passing day, we see Shohei Otani do something that is new and or changing what we think is possible for a professional baseball player. Along these lines, it seems to me that we need to rethink war when it comes to Otani. Even when we combine his pitching and his hitting war, it seems to overlook the value that Otani brings and that it would take two players to replace Otani versus just one. There must be incredible value in his ability to effectively add another roster spot to a team. If we could figure out how to capture this war, I suspect the MVP race isn't as close as we think from a fantasy perspective, I can personally attest to this. I play in a daily league with a very short bench and it is incredibly valuable to be able to get elite hitting and elite pitching stats from that single spot while also gaining value from the extra player that I can roster. Thanks, David. The yeah, daily moves leagues with Otani are incredible. He's he's there. There's your one one guy. If you play in that format, he's still that guy, regardless of what you think of Judge or Turner or any of the players in the conversation. Shohei Otani in a daily moves league where you get all those stats, hands down, 1-1 for 2023. As far as the war calculation goes, I I mean, I I agree this is a problem because when you you add up hitter war and pitcher war for Otani, it still doesn't seem right. Someone brought up on Twitter, too, that Otani, because he's a DH when he's in the lineup, gets the DH penalty in war, which is kind of weird because as a guy that can do something else, he's not like the typical DH who really can't really can't offer anything of of defensive value at all. Otani, of course, does more than that. And that's that part's captured by being a pitcher. But the, the DH tax on him is also worth considering. Yeah, no, uh, I think that in some ways, uh, war is built to answer this question. Because the thing that's cool about war is that you add up all your things that you do on the field and uh, and put it in in one number runs and then you can turn runs into wins of a replacement and so the fact that he pitches and runs and hits like war is made for that or that's the idea is to sum up all the different things you do on the field and he happens to do more than most people so in some ways war is perfect for that uh but uh it's that last letter replacement that i think um makes this a very difficult discussion. So when you think about your fantasy league, the extra roster spot is worth so much because there are great players on the wire. And so you might be able to pick up, uh, you know, who's a, who's a, uh, like maybe Brian Reynolds was dropped early in season, right? You might be able to pick up a Brian Reynolds, you know, with your extra roster spot created by, by, by him. Right. So you like in one of my leagues, uh, 
I'm fairly sure that Rowdy Telez was a was like a free pickup for me because because of Otani, you know, because I had that extra roster spot. I was like, oh, I can pick him up. Everybody else is wondering, is he worth starting or not? I don't have to worry about that. I have an extra spot. So that replacement level is super high and in a way makes that roster spot worth even more because the player you can put it in is great. Now think about it in, in baseball terms. The player that you can just pick up off of waivers is not great. I'm not sorry, usually, it's no. just not not usually good. And so I looked at this for a piece on The Athletic where I said, you know, what is that extra roster spot worth? And theoretically, it's zero because it's a replacement player, right? But then I, I tried to look at the 26... Oh, Jose Ramirez? Nope, Josh Naylor. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I looked at it and the 26th roster spot even if you do like 25th through 27th, the that roster spot is worth like 0.2 wins. So it's pretty much replacement, right? The best teams, the ones that are on the waiver wire all the time, like the Giants or the Dodgers or the Rays, they can wring a half win out of that spot. They're right. trying to do that. They want to do that. They're all over it and they're trying to claim guys and they claim guys and... You know, the list of, of, of players is, you know, well, like it's not, it's not, it's not very impressive. There's a couple ways to think about it, though. There's the waiver replacement, but there's also the internal replacement. So think about your lineup if it's a fantasy perspective or think about that roster spot from the who gets promoted, which player gets added to the roster from AAA. And the, the best teams in the league have really good depth at AAA. The Dodgers have that. The Giants have been doing a good job turning on the waiver wire so they they pull in a, a Willie Calhoun or a Yermin Mercedes or whoever it is but the Dodgers could at any point say oh Miguel Vargas is our extra guy and if you're a really good team and you have a great amount of depth then that player you bring up is probably better than the kind of player that you would get off the wire if you're a team like the Angels you fail to capture the value of the extra roster spot because you don't field a roster of 26 actual above replacement level big league players as it is you'd you'd actually be like like hurting yourself by not being deep enough to take advantage of that extra spot i i think you're right but i think we also overvalue prospects coming up you know, a lot of times they're just like a waiver claim you know like uh for example uh the rays got the most out of their 26 roster slot they always we think of them as always having quality depth in the minor leagues right mm-hmm. the yankees the Giants, the Dodgers, those guys all got basically half a win. But, you know, the Di- Giants did it more with waiver claims than with with young players. But either way, the best teams got a half win, <laughs> you know, like either either young players or waiver claims. Now, here's the here's the list of partial list of the waiver claims Farhan Zaidi has made with the Giants that have produced this half win. Jake Jewell, Jose Quintana, Luis Gonzalez, Sky Bolt, Luis Madero, Keen Wong, Tyler Anderson. Yeah, that's pretty good. Wandy Peralta, Ricardo Pinto, Corbin Joseph, Kyle Bearclaw, Ryan Dull, Joey Ricard, Aaron Althair, Hans Arobelter, and more. So that's your 26th man. Now, here's why I think uh, it, there is actual stress on war as a, as a concept or construct for this discussion. So War says it's just a roster spot. The replacement player is not an actual player. We're not asking you to talk about 
the actual player. Replacement player is just a, a construct. It's just a level. It's just We're just drawing a line here. And then value is above that, right? So it doesn't matter who would replace Shohei Tan. It doesn't matter that you have to find a batter and a pitcher. It's just a roster spot. So war still works. That's what war says. However, there are rules. Like, for example, you can only have 13 pitchers on your roster. And Shohei Otani does not count as one of those 13. Well, now you're talking specifically about Shohei Otani, right? And also, oh, by the way, Shohei Otani can only pitch every six days. So probably that replacement, that extra roster spot you got, it has to go to a pitcher. But wait, wait, wait. Now we're talking about actual replacement players for Shohei Otani. Like we're actually talking about the specifics of Shohei Otani instead of using war as a construct, right? If we just use war as a construct, we take the extra 0.5 wins that maybe a good team can get out of that extra roster spot, we put it on Shohei Otani, boom, done. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't think that's uh, that's fair because you, uh, you know, he, they didn't have to go to a six-man rotation because of Shohei Otani, but they do have to have a pitcher because he can only pitch every six days, right? So it ends up being either a starting pitcher or a pitcher has length. So that has some, that is, that is changing who you can replace him with. You know, and now you have to actually talk about Shohei Otani and the Angels when War is trying to tell you, no, we don't have to talk about the Angels. We don't have to talk about who would replace Shohei Otani. It's just a construct. But it doesn't work that way because we only have one Shohei Otani to talk about. You know, if we had a ton of them, we could be like, oh, well, see, this other guy here, he actually pitches every five days. And so, you know, he is, you know, there's his value or whatever, or, or War works for this guy. You know, we only have one show Itani. Like maybe Brandon McKay can come up and and give us, uh, you know, another way to look at the things. But for now, we only have one show Itani, so we actually have to talk about who would replace Show Itani. But War says you're not supposed to talk about who exactly replaces a player. Yeah, and just as far as the MVP race in the American League goes right now, Aaron Judge up at 10.4 wins above replacement. I mean, that's almost almost two full wins above what Otani is when you combine his hitter value and his pitcher value to this point. So I know the award should not just be decided by that, but that's enough of a gap where I think judge just has just kind of has the leg up at this time. I don't think, I don't know if there's enough he could do in the next two and a half weeks to close the gap. I think, I think it's judges award there 10 wins uh, and people don't like to talk about war, but like, I think that in this case, actually, um, you know, it actually gives us uh, a good look into comparing his seasons to other seasons in the past. You know, 10-win seasons are very rare. In the history of baseball, uh, in terms of 10-win seasons, in the history of baseball, we've got 50, 55 seasons. In the history of baseball, how many of those have come in the 2000s? We got Alex Rodriguez, Mike Trout, Buster Posey, Mike Trout again, and a bunch of Barry Bonds. Those are the modern guys. Yeah, the best modern season we have is the Barry Bonds 2002 season, 12.7 war. So basically, Aaron Judge is having a top, right now he's having the 43rd best season ever by Fangraphs War. Yeah. I think even if you... 
are very specific about value and you just want like it's just a war award for you or whatever or it's not or you don't even want to look at war i think that just saying that saying like aaron judge is having a top 50 season of all time i think that is enough for me to be like okay give him the mvp because shohei otani is over here having a good pitcher season and a good hitter season yeah, even I would say even a better pitcher season than hitter season, just based on how it's valued to this point. But neither one of those seasons is going to be a top fifty season ever, and even even if you add them together, probably not a top fifty season ever. So it's okay. You can give it to Judge. We don't have to give it to Otani every year because he's a hitter and a pitcher. You know what I mean? No, of course not. And also, no value, no number that's that purports to sum up value is without problems there is no perfect number that sums up a player's value i'm just sorry there is not and since we know that the numbers can be fallible can we like like take a step back in the discourse there's like a there's a guy out here on twitter calling major league players names He's like a, a writer, supposedly, on Twitter, calling Vlad Jr. a little B because he has a, an opinion about, you know, who should win the, the, the judge should win the MVP. It's weird and unnecessary. I mean, just generally, man, please. It's a call for civility. Jesus. Yeah, I'm looking at the, since 2000, the seasons we've seen, the 10 more seasons. I mean, uh-huh. It's just not that many. It's Bonds, Bonds, Bonds again, Betts, Judge, Betts, Bonds, Trout, Posey, Trout, A-Rod. So we've seen 10 seasons like this since 2000. Yeah. Enjoy it. 10 wins. And like, I would say probably of these 54 seasons, 45 of them are MVPs, you know? And then the other five just came. Oh, you know, you know who got jobbed a lot was Millie Mays. Willie Mays had a bunch of 10 uh, win seasons where he didn't win. And I think, you know, to some extent, Willie Mays does uh, give us a, a problem or give us an example. And even Mike Trout himself, where mm, there's a little bit that's there's a recency bias or like a um, like a fatigue almost. Right. This happens in pretty much every sport when you have someone who is just amazing in their year peak, over year dominant. over year yeah there's it, i don't know how this happens but it, it's it's superstar fatigue yeah and and i think it's it's kind of an, an underpinning of all sports radio and many podcast debates that rage on forever in basketball it's everything about lebron but in baseball it's trout fatigue when trout was at peak trout levels it was always about trying to figure out who could just knock him off the throne instead of appreciating yeah, that he was a special player. And like, you know, right. Who's the next oh, trout was a more had common a, question. You know, almost a, 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 a triple crown. Like, you know, did he get the, did he get the, he got the triple crown that year and he won? Did he? No, he didn't get it. I don't think so. But did he win the MVP? No, he was second to Shoyotani last year. Yeah, Otani won it. But then that that's also applies to Otani to some degree too. This yeah. year is an exception because you can historic you can pull back and see the historical greatness of the season that Aaron Miguel Judge Cabrera had. got the triple crown and and got the MVP over right. Trout. And whereas I think, War said Trout should have won. 
I think that happens a lot, though, with, with superstars. I think there's just this, oh, no, it's got to be somebody else. Instead of just saying, wait, no, it's still the best player in the game. Also, shiny you, new toy bias or something. It happens very big in beer, by the way. <laughs> like, like, everybody wants the new thing. Yeah. Do you have an old thing that you've been going back to lately? Uh, we've been we've had some Pliny the Elder in the in the uh, in the in the in the house because there's been more production, and yeah, it's a great <laughs> beer. I don't know, <laughs> nobody needs to like. Still great, still awesome. Also have some stupid hazies next to it with stupid cans. <laughs> Sounds about right. But thanks a lot for that question, David. Uh, Last email before we go. This one came from Sean. Sean writes, your podcast is the perfect thing to listen to when I'm out for a run. Any chance of a three and a half hour podcast (laughs) to help get me through the New York Marathon on November 6th? Mm. No. (laughs) Feeling no. um, Love that we could even be considered to help you along on a long, long run like that. And uh, it's also a little bit too early for us to start doing positional uh, things so you could just, you know, do first base, second base and third base on your marathon. Yeah. So I think the the key here would be to maybe don't listen to the pod from about October 15th until (laughs) race day. And you'll have three and a half hours worth of episodes stacked up and you can just binge through three or four episodes from the off season. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to figure out what we're going to do during the playoffs. But uh. Yeah, I think there's going to be some tweaks to the plan. I know in years past we've done we did live streams last year. We did after playoff game recordings the year before that. I think we're going to do some stuff. Roughest. That was not great because I lived in Wisconsin at that time, so the time <laughs> change didn't work well. I was producing the episodes. I was up very late. Britt was on the East Coast, still is, so... It was even later for her waiting for games to end. That was a bad fit. But I think we're going to do some stuff in the athletic baseball show feed around the three O show, probably more series specific stuff. So not necessarily the live stream, not necessarily every day, but we will have some playoff content. We're just kind of figuring out where and when. Yeah. If you have any suggestions for us uh, of what what you would like, especially from rates and barrels, because I think three O show, you know, we're following along. It's real baseball. Uh, But if you what do you what do you want from a fantasy baseball show during the playoffs? Yeah, what helps you the most in October from you, a fantasy baseball perspective? And we'll take yeah. you know we'll take a couple little breaks here and there too. It's a good time for us to recharge, but we'll have plenty of episodes between now and the end of the year. And of course, we're still going twice a week through the end of the season, which I just want the season to be over. We could start talking about next year, like we could just get a really early start if you wanted us to, but. Yeah, let us know what you want. Uh, tweets are good. The email's a bit of a, a mess. So uh, at Enosaris on Twitter. At Derek Van Riper, at email boxes like an on fire dumpster right now. So just you know, steer clear of there for a little while, unless you get a very specific question for an upcoming episode. Rates and barrels at theathletic.com is the email address if you'd like to go that route. Uh, if you need a subscription to the Athletic, it's a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com/slash rates and barrels. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Thursday. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>